now listening to the Schuster Express on 1252 Sports Chicago. And now for your host, David Schuster. And good evening and welcome in once again to my humble little podcast. In just a moment, I'm going to be joined by a friend of mine, a longtime cohort uh, who I worked with at The Score. That's Dan McNeil. We'll bring him in in just a moment. But before we get to anything else, I just want to do my normal recap of what's going on locally in sports. I was at the Bulls game at the United Center earlier today. It was an exciting game. DeMar DeRozan scoring a season-high 45 points. Joel Embiid, 40 for Philadelphia. And as the result of today's loss by the Bulls, that means that uh, Billy Donovan is not going to coach the NBA All-Star game uh, for the Eastern Conference. I don't think it's really that big a deal to him. I'm sure he's making enough money that, you know, if he lost out any money on that, that's really not that big a deal. Um, It was really interesting. After the game, DeRozan was asked, you know, the trading deadline is coming up on Thursday. Uh, Does he think that the Bulls need to do something in order to get over the hump and maybe win a a title this season, of which I don't think they're going to do no matter what. That's my opinion. And he uh, correctly said, you know what? We have a lot of players that are injured right now. He mentioned Lonzo Ball. He mentioned Alex Caruso. He mentioned Patrick Williams. And eventually all those three players will come back, uh, Ball and Caruso before Williams. So they'll get better as the season goes on. Again, I don't see them winning an NBA title the way they're currently constituted. But hopefully I I can be proven wrong. Anyway, so that's a story on the Bulls. If you watch the NFL Pro Bowl game today, get your head examined. That's not football. That's all I'm going to say on that. That's just garbage. Um, As far as the Bears, uh, I'm going to say the same thing today that I said last week. I'm just not excited by anything that they're doing. They hired another junior executive as their uh, general manager, just like they did with Ryan Pace. They hired, hired another coach who has no head coaching experience, much like Matt Nagy was before he came to the Bears. So it's all about players in the NFL and our guest coming up in just a couple of minutes. I'm sure he's got thoughts on that because he's a big football guy, of course. Um, Cubs and White Sox, there's no baseball now, and there might not be baseball for quite a while. The two sides, uh, they're like two petulant children, talking about the owners and the players. They just can't get their blank together. Eventually they will because they know that they can't ultimately kill the golden goose, but we'll see on that. And then the Blackhawks and Rocky Rocky Words is still a putz for what he did last week. uh, And we'll talk to our guest about that as well. So without further ado, let's bring in that guest, uh, Dan McNeil, who you can follow on Twitter at Danny Mac. What do you got there, buddy? Ah, I am a football guy. This is my lucky hoochie. I need to pump some air in it, Shoe. It's I can, I can squeeze it. It's deflated. I could probably throw it a good 30 yards. <laughs> you and Tom Brady with deflated footballs. I love it. Yeah, we often have been compared a lot, Tom Brady and me. Yeah, you all your carbon copies. You both have model wives, you know, uh, superstar <laughs> model wives. We both don't eat bread. <laughs> okay, well, that's probably where it ends right there. <laughs> anyway, you can follow Danny uh, on Twitter at DannyMac2021. Danny and I, it's really interesting, Danny, because I we, we talked about this many times over the years. We were like ships in the dark. When I was at ESPN, you were at the score. Then you went over to ESPN. I went over to the score. Ultimately, you came back to the score, of course, and we finally got to work together. And, and honestly, I was really thrilled by that because I've been one of your biggest fans, even when I wasn't one of your cohorts on, you know, at the station, because I've always said this about talk show host, Danny. 
that some guys have it and some guys don't. And when I always say that somebody has it, I, I refer to them as being able to carry a tune using a music um, analogy. And I always thought, Glenn, when you were doing a show, especially when you were talking about the things that you love, and that's hockey and football, you could keep my interests, you know, whether information-wise or entertainment-wise. So you're one of the better, if not one of the best ones that has done sports talk in Chicago. I know I'm blowing smoke, but I really mean that. That's very kind of you. And, and you know, and uh, yeah, it was my goal from uh, from the very beginning to work with everybody in the business. So I kept shuffling my shoes. And when I wasn't getting when I wasn't getting fired, I ran away from radio stations. So I tried a few different things and I worked with so many different people and it did take us a while before our circles finally intersected. And there are some people like Bobby Scafish, with whom I worked at three different radio stations, beginning at the AMFM Loop and then at XRT and The Score. Uh, and then we worked together at The Drive for a very short period of time. He got fired from his uh, afternoon drive job at The Drive shortly after they hired me in the winter of 2015. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, you don't have to go too long or too far telling stories about radio to be reminded of how awful the business in. They fired Bobby Scafish, who's, you know, one of the one of the seminal rock and roll disc jockeys in Chicago in the last 30 years. I guess it's his fault. People were tired of ELO's do ya. Uh, just didn't make any sense. But yeah, we we worked together. Bruce Levine and I worked together at a few different shops. And, uh, you know, I got nothing but affection for those who sail with me, to quote Eric Clapton. And uh, that'll be the last time I quote Eric Clapton tonight. Well, but you will be quoting Alice Cooper because that's something you and I definitely have in common. And, and there was that famous time where was it? Uh, House of Blues, I think. There, All of a sudden, we're watching Cooper, and I turned to my right. There you are. You were sitting on one of those high chairs, and I was standing, and it was pretty crowded that day. And actually, you know what's funny, Danny? I went back. I Googled it. It was uh, – I have it here somewhere. It was, it was 2002. It was, it was April – or no, excuse me, October 23rd, 2002. And I actually Googled it, and they came up with the set list. Yeah. There was 32 songs he played in that set list. I didn't recall it being that long, but I might have been, you know, an altered state myself. <laughs> I didn't realize it was that many songs either. Usually 22 or 24 is about the uh, the full diet for, for any band or artist. But, yeah, I, rem I wasn't sure if that was you. I'm looking at it. Is it, you know, because I didn't know you all that well in Zero Two. And, you know you would have not been a suspect for me to bump into at the Alice Cooper show. Not many people really dig Alice Cooper, even guys our age. He didn't have the same passionate following the Rolling Stones or the Who or a lot of other bands had. Um, but that's fine with me, and I love those bands too. But uh, Alice Cooper is one of my rock and roll heroes. And uh, he just celebrated a birthday on Friday. Yes. Coop turned 75. Correct. Absolutely correct. And you finally got to meet him. And he came in studio, correct? Well, I didn't meet him in studio. We were, Matt Spiegel and I did an interview with him in 2012. And 
I put him on the spot, um, and he really dug the interview. Uh, I thought he really liked some of the chords we were striking, and I had just read his book, Golf Monster, in it. He talked about how he loved having someone in the group uh, when he's playing golf who um, who liked to send messages to slower groups in front of him. He said, I always want to get a guy in my group who hits it a little bit farther than I do so we can send a message to slow players. And I told him, I said, Alice, I'll be your message sender. Um, I really want to play with you when you guys get to Chicago this summer. Tell me how big the check is I need to write. How many zeros do I have to put on a check to the charity of your choice to get on the golf course with you? And I put him on the spot. And to my surprise, the Callaway people called and said, Alice really loved the time he spent with you. He'd love to play with Dan. But it was on a 4th of July, which is a day for my family. Um, it was in Milwaukee, and uh, I would have been shot at the end of the day if I'd gotten up at 4 o'clock in the morning to drive to Milwaukee to play nine holes with Alice. It was hot and humid that day. And then trailer my boat 70 miles each way. I think it's about 60 miles each way to go to, uh, to the lake where I take my son Patrick tubing on the 4th. So it just didn't work out. But I did meet him when I got to MC his show in Maryville in May of 2016, and that was one of my career highlights. I'm not kidding you. Now, I, I didn't stand on stage and say, ladies and gentlemen, here's Alice Cooper, but 10 minutes before he started the show, I went out and grabbed the microphone and made you know announcements on upcoming shows, um, worked the crowd for just a couple of minutes, um, made a reference to Cold Ethel, who I had I had to go see in the green room. And then I got to spend some time with Alice after the show. And uh, it was really, really cool because he's one of the few people I've really wanted to meet. It's uh, as you learned interviewing sports dudes over the years, be careful on who your heroes are. Maybe right. you don't want to meet all of them. But Alice is the real deal, man. I love him. I love his music. Uh, it meant a lot to me as a kid. It means a lot to me today. You know, I really consider him a genius. First of all, a genius who knows how to make money. That's, you know, the, those people are geniuses in themselves. But a genius in, in his industry, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, it's overlooked, but certain members of the Three Stooges, Curly, okay, Jerome Howard, he's a genius. He was a genius. He didn't get the credit that he deserved, but he was a genius. And I, I consider Alice Cooper, and by the way, his real name, of course, is Vincent Fernier. Fernier, is, am I pronouncing it correctly, Danny? Yeah, Fournier. Um, he's a hockey player. You don't pronounce the second R. Fournier, very nice. Yes, he's born in Detroit City, and he played guitar in a long-haired rock and roll band. Yeah, hang on to your Alice Cooper knowledge because it might come in handy at the end of this podcast. I'll forewarn you. <laughs> anyway, all right, so you mentioned uh, that you've worked with a lot of people over the years, and of course, right off the bat, at least at the early days of the score, and you were one of the originals along with North and Brian Hanley, Tom Scheer, Dan Chiggetts, and of course, your partner in crime in the afternoon, that was Terry Boris, who I love to death. And you were known as the Heavy Fuel Crew. Give us some highlights. I mean, you know, if you can capsulize all those great years with you and Terry together. Terry originally started um, on a part-time basis with us when we fired up the transmitter on January 2 of 92. Terry wasn't convinced the business model was going to work. So he was continuing to write full time for the Sun Times. And he was kind of a utility writer at the time. They took away his column 
a few years before that. He was angry about that, but he still didn't trust um, sports radio. No one had ever tried it. It's a daytime only operation. So I alternated between Terry and Brian Hanley. I was the most polygamous guy in Chicago radio, uh, at least in the studio. And, uh, you know, occasionally we'd bring in Bill Gleason from the Daily Southtown or Kent McDill. I had to, I, I had to make, you know, I had to have somebody with me. I never liked doing it alone. And uh, Terry came on board full-time in August of 92 and uh, after about seven months, eight months. And Mike Ditka in that first year was an enormous highlight. And Ditka was maniacal. He'd written off all local media. Other than after the games, he wouldn't talk to the media in Lake Forest. The media were all off limits. You didn't get Mike. He paid the fines. The NFL slapped on him for it. But you'd get him on Tuesdays on the score. And the five regular hosts, Cher, Jiggets, North, McNeil, and Bors, all traded who would sit with then-co-host Mike Pyle and do the Ditka show. And Ditka hated Bors, and he didn't like me a lot of the time. You throw in the fact that he's 5-11 and 11 that year, on his way out the door, and I think he knew that was coming pretty early in the season. He was really surly, and that's. I'm driving home in my little Ford Bronco, and I hear Ditka ask Terry, who you crapping? And a light bulb goes on, and I think, hey, there's our weekly our first or, you know, organic segment. When someone is telling you a lie, you call and expose him. You give him a who you crapping, and that segment was a signature staple at the score for, what, 20 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. That was a highlight going to Seattle in 96 with the Bulls in the finals. Even though the Bulls aren't really my thing, um, it was a great trip. Um, hanging out, closing the hotel bar with Dan Patrick, Mike Tirico, Brent Musburger, and Terry Bores was was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I was devastated when they broke us up in August of 99. Um, I didn't think it was right, and I didn't think it was right to not have conversations with um, – with a guy who was there as the first employee. And that's who I was. I mean, I was there four months before we signed on interviewing would-be producers. Here I am not even 30 and I'm interviewing would-be producers and making recommendations for airships and building a sound library. I, you know, I, I was owed a conversation about what was going on in their heads, but they didn't give it to me and they made their changes. And about 15 months later, I split, hoping to get a gig at ESPN 1000, which ultimately I did. All right, well, let's talk about that since you just brought it up. You were part of the three-man crew, and I'm not going to ask you to, to go over the other people. On, you know, um, But a three-man crew seems like on radio, much like on TV, one person too many. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, in my opinion. Well, there's no right or wrong. Um, I like the gaggle. I, I like when more people are involved. I originally was was horrified by the idea of it. Not only do I not want to do a three-man show in May of 01, I don't want Harry Dinowitz to be anywhere near a live microphone. I didn't trust him to be an afternoon drive personality, and John Yurkovich started very slowly, and Harry pounced on his opportunity to try to be the number two, and we clashed. And that show sucked for the first 18 months. But after a while, I became reliant on the third guy. With three guys, you almost always can have two guys engaged in a topic. If two guys 
are just playing ping pong with each other. One of them, maybe one of them's not having a great day. Maybe one of them doesn't like the content. You can find that content uh, partner in the other guy, hopefully. Take, for example, horse racing. I didn't know Jack about horse racing. Both Harry and Yurko did. They got me interested in it eventually, but I was fine with them talking about it in the early years because I didn't know anything. Uh, Harry didn't know anything about fishing. Yurko and I would talk fishing. Um auto racing. I would engage Yurko on that on occasion because I do have some uh, some hillbilly blood in me and know a little bit about auto racing. It doesn't thrill me, but I know the sport a little bit, or at least did at that time. Uh, so you can always find somebody. And with music, Harry and I, you, you can always find somebody to talk to about something that interests you. With two guys, it doesn't always work that way, and things fall dead if one of the guys isn't interested. Ask Danny Parkins um, about what it's like to work with me when the topic is pro basketball. I flag very quickly in the conversation because it's not been something I've wanted to do for a long time. Yeah, I was going to say, you're very honest with your opinion on that subject. I mean, let's face it, you're you're synonymous with football, of course, of what you played once upon a time yourself. And, of course, hockey, which I think is your ultimate love, um, even maybe more so than football. You'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. But you've always said over the years that basketball just doesn't do anything for you. It happens to be the one sport that I love more than probably any other. But that's fine. As long as, you know, you're honest with your thoughts. Again, you were so, so good in the sports that you love, Danny, that it just carried through, in my opinion. Thanks. Um, I appreciate that. I, you know, the NFL is my favorite league. I, I love watching pro football. Um, bums me out. We only have one more game to go. And uh, I guess before that game kicks off, I'll get my head examined because I did watch some of the Pro Bowl today. You, you I'm know, sorry. You, you <laughs> bastard. Who do you – what are you saying? Um, so the NFL is my favorite league, and the Chicago Blackhawks are, are my favorite team. I had a tough week this past week, given, given where both of those entities are right now. The NFL – and I knew this was coming when David Culley got fired from the Texans after just one year, and rightfully so. Blackhead coaches get such a short leash in that league. And Brian Flores didn't have the time he should have had in Miami. There also was a disagreement with his owner on the quarterback, Tua Tagliaviola. Mm -hmm. But Steve Wilkes in uh, Phoenix just a couple of years ago with the Cardinals, he gets popped after one year. It's it's unjust that in a league which has a 78% African-American workforce that only one or two guys are black. I don't like that. I don't like that the integrity of the game is being compromised by owners who would rather have higher draft picks than wins and offer head coaches incentives for losing games, and that ultimately is going to be very interesting because we're talking about federal law. We're talking about the feds getting involved and examining on a very, very you know thorough level the legitimacy of the league I love. So those things bugging me this week, and then the town meeting gone awry hosted by Rocky Wirtz, or not hosted by Rocky Wirtz, but Rocky stealing the show and not in a good way just made me feel very, very sad. 
Yeah, let, let's take uh, both of those things one at a time. Um, obviously, Flores came out with his lawsuit, and it was very quickly countered, if you will, not with a counter lawsuit, but you saw John Elway say that you know he he defended himself, that all the things that he was accused of, along with his organization, were not true. The Giants said the same thing. Uh, the Miami owner said that you know he did not offer that money. So it's he said he said. Obviously, what do you think ultimately happens there? I have no idea what's going to happen with any of that, but the Rooney rule has been something that has every year I would have to assume there are candidates interviewed, you know, cause what are there usually six, seven openings a year this year? We had nine, I think um, there's usually six a year at least. So those are six teams that have to do interviews with minorities. No one will tell me that at least one of those isn't done as a, as a cursory interview that is not being taken seriously by the team that's looking for a head coach. And I know for a fact there have been coaching candidates, uh, one in Chicago in particular, um, a minority candidate who has flown to Chicago in coach for an interview for the Bears head coaching position. Now, do you think when Bill Belichick leaves that Robert Kraft is going to do anything shy of sending his private jet to the greatest coaches of all time successor? That's how you operate when you're a classy operation. And the Bears don't do it that way. And there's a lot of teams that um, that that have that attitude. And it wouldn't surprise me if it, if Denver's guilty of this and other teams that go through the motions because they have to and have absolutely no desire to hire that guy. But how do you prove that? I mean, that therein lies the rub. How do you prove that somebody wasn't a legitimate candidate? First of all, I'm surprised that the Bears don't don't didn't do it via Amtrak or even Greyhound, to be honest with you. <laughs> All right, let's move. Let's move on to the town hall because honestly, that was embarrassing, like no tomorrow. Um, and, and what was really just compounding everything is that Danny Wirtz was just about to answer with a politically correct answer to the question. I'm sure, along with um, um, forgive me, I forget her name already, who's now in charge of business operations, the president for the Hawks. She would have handled it because they're both savvy. But then Rocky Wirtz just sabotaged the whole thing. And instantly he turned into his father. That's that's what I saw. And a lot of other people saw the same thing. And all the good that the Hawks have tried, underlined, tried to do, you know, behind the scenes or on the surface, it just went down the shitter right then and there. It was nothing short of shocking how off the tracks that thing went. And I always have liked Rocky. Rocky always had been very kind to me. It is my want to like people, not dislike them. Um, man, I, I couldn't believe. And you're right. I mean, it did seem like Bill Wirtz, who was vilified again when people talked about him this week because of Rocky and people who may never have met Bill Wirtz wanted to speak authoritatively about how bad of a guy he was. He wasn't a bad guy. Bill Wirtz was one of the mis most misunderstood figures in Chicago sports history. He just made a lot of bad business decisions, like putting his team's goddamn games on television. 
that was a bad business decision. He was loyal to a fault. Um, but I'm getting off topic here. Um, I would have hoped that Rocky would have been progressive enough to recognize the errors of their ways and be sensitive to the victims. And if he didn't want to respond to Mark Lazarus or Phil Thompson, at least have son Danny handle that portion of it, because he clearly doesn't possess the smarts, frankly, to be addressing that. He doesn't have the awareness in in, in a more and and fortunately sensitive society than it used to be about what happened with Kyle Beach and what may have happened to other players. Yeah. What, what, what really struck me when he just all of a sudden took over right then and there, a lot of times when people get older, um, they lose their filter. And that's exactly what I saw happening right then and there. He lost his filter. Unfortunately, a lot of his real feelings started to come to the surface and I'm sure he's still pissed off about the money that they've probably had to pay out of their own pocket. Um, and there's probably more to come out of their pocket because other people are going to sue them from what happened 10 plus years ago. So he's still PO'd about all that. And like I said, I think his filter just came off and he, he came across as such an asshole, to be honest with you. And we'll see if they can recoup. But let's talk about the product on the ice as well. Danny, because let's face it, this season got off to like an all-time thud. Uh, Jeremy Colleton, I don't know if he's a good coach or not, although he's now coaching, I guess, at the Olympics, if I'm not mistaken, the Canadian team or, or something along those lines. But they were—they were, it, it was a disaster from the word go. Derek King has done as best as he can. I guess he's a, a little bit of a calming influence. But, you know, Kane and Taze are not the players that they were. Certainly Taze isn't anymore. Kane... I don't know. I think, honestly, Danny, you tell me. I think Kane has been sort of gypped over the years because he's a Hall of Fame, of course, kind of player. But if they would have kept him with the same line mates as opposed to changing his line mates almost every single year, and I just think that has sort of undercut even how much greater he would have been if he would have had great line mates continually uh, along with him on the same line. I think there's some merit to that. I... um... I don't know if I would go so far as to say gypped. Um, but the wrong word. What's that? I said maybe that's the wrong word. Well, would would he have had more more impressive numbers than he has even already? Probably. Um, Patrick Kane has had some of the best hands in hockey um, I've ever seen. And when you have great goal scorers playing on the same line with guys – who have that playmaking ability with their hands. I, I, I likened him. Now he was more of a scorer than Adam Oates was with the St. Louis blues years ago. But when Brett Hull was scoring 70 and 80 goals in a season in that era of hockey, when that was common, um, Adam Oates was the guy who was putting the puck on his tape because he was so good. And they played together for a long time. Patrick Kane needed a guy like that. I think if he would have played with a guy like that, you would have seen some 90 assist, 100 assist seasons, um, and he didn't quite get there. I thought Alex DeBrinket was going to be that guy, and I don't know where they are with Alex DeBrinket right now, but he hasn't really consistently played at that level so many were projecting him to be playing at. Now, I have to confess this, though. Full disclosure, shoot. 
I have not watched hockey this year very much at all. I read about the Hawks on my phone. I see the highlights. I'm, I, I just turned 60 in August, and when you're on the back nine of life, you don't have time for a lousy product, and that's what they've had for the last couple of years. They're not going to the playoffs, and I know this will disappoint some of your listeners and viewers, but I, I say what's going on, and without fear of retribution, I won't watch them when they're that bad. If that makes me a bad fan, guilty as charged. I just don't have time for it anymore. No, that's fine. That's fine. You know, I've always said this, Danny, and I love all sports, but, you know, basketball has always been my favorite. Um, But if all sports are played to their zenith, to their best uh, possible, um, hockey is the best. Hockey is just the most exciting. And obviously them winning the three Stanley Cups was a highlight for all of us that we'll never forget. But I go back to even those teams when Gretzky was winning all those Stanley Cups, the Hawks had great teams. And if it wasn't for Edmonton, they probably would have won a couple of cups then as well. Um, So yeah, hockey's has just been always one of the best sports to watch when it's played well. Yeah. In person, there's nothing like hockey. And uh, you remember how fun it was on that 180 foot ice surface at the old Chicago stadium. And you watch contrasting styles like the best Blackhawks team that never won the cup in our lifetimes. Um, the 90-91 team that finished with 106 points when 106 points meant something. They won the President's Trophy, got punched out in the first round by the Minnesota North Stars, but that was a team that would just dump it in, plaster your face against the glass, dig out loose pucks and center it in front and cram the net and crease area and and try to get greasy goals, as they say. They weren't pretty but they were physical and they were consistent. And they did have a sniper in Jeremy Roenick. It wasn't like they didn't have some skilled players, but they weren't the Edmonton Oilers. My goodness, you look at those Oilers teams of the 80s, they're, they're six players deep, I, I would think, in Hall of Famers. Mm-hmm. The goaltender, Grant Fuhr, is in the Hall of Fame, and he was one of the weakest links on their team. Um, he could give up four goals a game because they were going to score eight. Kretzky, Mestier, Glenn Anderson, Yari Curry. Um, who am I missing? Mike Kruzelnivsky. Coffee. Uh, on the blue line, uh, you had Paul Coffey. You had uh, Kevin Lowe on the blue line. Charlie Huddy, who was – Charlie Huddy was their fourth defenseman, man. You put Cowboy Huddy on most teams in the league, he's number two. Yeah, I thought the Hawks were so good back then – but they were a half a stride behind Edmonton and they just never could beat them. It was really amazing. All right. So you mentioned Alice Cooper earlier on is one of your all time passions, but I know you have two other passions that you really love and that's both golf and fishing. So let's start with fishing because I share that with you as well. I'm nowhere near the expert you are on the lakes and and on any other body of water. Give us some of your best all time uh, fishing stories, Danny. Um, My favorite freshwater fish I ever caught was a, uh, and I don't count it as, as a 50 inch musky boated because the league office has ruled no goal. Um, here's why <laughs> we were walleye fishing. We were fishing in 25 feet of water for walleye on walleye tackle. I've got eight pound test and a seven foot rod, nothing too hardy to battle those big fish. 
And as I, after I set the hook on a walleye in 25 feet of water, I immediately felt a wham, thump. A muskie got the walleye. He T-boned the walleye. <laughs> and I didn't see the muskie for a good 15 minutes. My guide kept the boat right on top of the fish. We stayed vertical. Otherwise, she would have unspooled me. I mean, those things take off, and I, I'm not going to – because you can't fight with that light of line. You have to let it wear itself out. Right. And I have no idea if this fish is hooked or if it just has the walleye in its mouth. We see that it wasn't hooked. It's just got the walleye T-bone. When we finally get it up about 10 feet below the surface in that clear water in, um, in Ontario – um, which is not always great for fishing, by the way, but this part of uh, Eagle Lake, Portage Bay, is very clear water. I like to fish the, the cloudier water, actually. Um, but it took about 25 minutes before we finally got this thing in the net, and freakishly, when it spit the walleye out, the hook from the walleye bait, the minnow hook for the walleye, got up in the muskie's mouth, and, and kept the fish on for just a few seconds for us to get her in the bag. And she was 50 and a half inches, not a real thick fish, but um, it was amazing. It was just so much fun because we knew it was a pig and we knew we had to wait her out and I had to be patient and don't jerk the rod and and don't, don't snap off by being impatient. Let her tire out. And it was just so much fun. It was it was a blast. That's that's probably my favorite freshwater story. All right, so hang on to all your fishing information because that also will come in handy at the end of this podcast. Um, now you're notorious, and I hate to use that word, but you're famous for taking a, a trip at least once a year up north across the border up into Canada, whether Ontario. Have you gone up to any other provinces up there to do any fishing? Unfortunately, no. Okay, I'll give you my fishing story up in Canada, and I'm going way, way back. I was 16 years old, 1972, and I'm with my father, a good friend of mine, and his father. My father didn't really do anything sports-related, and certainly he wouldn't know a fish fishing reel from anything else, but he did it for me, so God bless him and, and his memory. So we went up, we flew to Winnipeg, we took a bush plane from there, Oh, another couple of hours north. And we were way, way, way up there at this point. And the water was crystal clear. I mean, you could literally dip your head over the boat and start drinking the water. It was that clear and that pure. And walleyes, and I, I had never gone walleye or northern fishing before. And it was the best. I had never even had a shore lunch until that time. It was it was the most, I, I'm almost going to use the word orgasmic experience. But it was one of the oh, great, yeah. it, was, it was one of the great experiences of my life. To do that, and we were catching, you know, six, seven, eight pound walleyes, and and my friend's uh, father caught a twenty six pound northern that was actually spawning. So it, you know, by the time we got it, for, you know, back into shore later on and waited again, it lost like a bunch of wa uh, weight, uh, water weight, or if you will. So I mean, that was just one of the best experiences of my life. So I can totally identify when you go up north into Canada. I've never gone musky fishing. What is the difference between musky fishing and even northern? Uh, fishing? Well, northern, you can catch pretty much on anything. You can catch northern pike while when bass fishing, they'll they'll eat anything. You put a, you fix some hooks to a, a beer can, it'll bite it. <laughs> um, they're, 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 the, they're a cousin of the muscalunge, right. part of the Esox family. 
Um, Northern aren't very smart. They don't get quite as big, but boy, they are so good to eat. And, uh, you know, everybody talks about walleye being such a sweet, easy to eat, not fishy fish. And that's all true. But I, I, for me, I'll, I'll take a Northern pike, um, for eating, but the muskie is the fish of 10,000 casts, um, or is it 1,000? Yeah, it's 1,000. Minnesota is the land of 10,000 lakes. The muskie is the fish of 1,000 casts. Because every time I catch one, I say, all right, only 990 more throws to go. Because that's what it takes sometimes. I went to Canada th- three times in one year and didn't boat a fish. Wow. Um, now, one of those trips wasn't a muskie trip. It was before uh, muskie season. Muskie season always in Ontario opens the third Saturday in June. I was up there Memorial Day weekend right after the Hawks lost to the Kings in the Western Conference Finals in 14. I was so bummed out over that. That was a great series, by the way. Oh, it was a great seven-gamer, and they just couldn't. Uh, what was it? Jeff Carter. They just couldn't keep him out of the crease. And ah, but, um, <laughs> So I went up there to get drunk for a few days and forget about uh, the Hawks getting punched out and do some smallmouth and walleye fishing. Um, but two more trips and didn't boat a muskie. You have to have enormous patience. It, it requires a lot of physical uh, strength and endurance. Um, if I'm not fit, I and there are times when I'm not, believe it or not, David, um, <laughs> I'm not as effective of a muskie fisherman. The last summer, I wasn't in the best physical shape, and my son and I went on a hot day to a a lake about 85 miles from where we live in Northwest Indiana. And I told him at the two hour mark, I said, I got to take a 20 minute break. I, I'm not fit for this because you're constantly throwing and winding. It's heavy tackle, heavy gear. There's no sitting around drinking beer. It's, it's a good weed sport because uh, it keeps you going. If, if you're one of those who, when you, not you, you figuratively, um, anybody if, if if you're a person who likes to get up and do things when you smoke pot like i do i don't just fall into the couch i like to clean the garage or or, or catch muskies it's perfect activity for that so uh, i i love it because it's so rare when you get one and you can go from zero to hero very very quickly and a lot of the actions at the boat too and when you have a 48 inch fish that has a 23 inch girth and weighs 40 pounds strike you wildly right at the right at the boat there's nothing like that in freshwater fishing can you catch muskies while trolling or is it all casting no you can troll for muskie um and i have to add that to my game because i'm getting older um and because i don't have the strength to throw all day i don't like that i've had to add that to the game but if it keeps you on the water longer that's a good thing and I'm just learning trolling techniques via via my guy uh, Musky Pete in the um, in the Northwoods of uh, Northwestern Wisconsin. He uh, he's a tremendous guide on the Chippewa flowage where I've stayed three or four times in the last couple of years. He's teaching me how to troll, but I would prefer to throw for them. Fair enough. All right. Well, one other passion that we both share, and you're a much better golfer. I'm I'm a hacker, but I still love it. What do they say? Uh, a bad day on the golf course beats any good day in the office, which is true, as long as you're out in nature. Uh, and some of the golf courses are just so beautiful. But give us one of your best uh, golf stories, because I know you like pounding that ball. 
Oh, yes, I do. Um, I used to hit it a long way. That changed probably seven or eight years ago uh, when a series of injuries began to uh, to hobble me. I, uh, I ruptured my left biceps tendon um, and didn't get it fixed within the window. So my left arm has about 20% of the strength of my right arm. So I've had to make some adjustments there. It's not fixable now. And there's really not much I can do to get it stronger because the bi- the biceps tendon is in two pieces. It's severed. Uh, it was a complete rupture. I should have gotten it fixed in 14. Um, but I can't hit it a long way. I, I You know, I live for that next moment, just that next opportunity to do something great. And my scorecard doesn't matter to me as much as it once did. Um, probably my favorite golf memory in recent years would be in Arizona at Eagle Mountain just, uh, just two years or now three years ago now when I had, uh, just lost 50 bucks to Danny Parkins on the hole before on a par three, we're playing closest to the hole and we're then on a par five. And I hit a nice drive. Don't hit it 300 anymore like I used to, but I knocked it 280 yards in the middle of the fairway. I'm 237 yards to the green. And the green is elevated and guarded by tiered bunkers. There are tiered bunkers on from the middle to the right side of it. And I said to Parkins, double or nothing, I'm on. From 237 yards, double or nothing, I'm on the green. Now, I've been on the green from 235, 240 yards in two a few times in my life. But to be willing to throw 50 bucks out there and say, yeah, I'll be on. Well, what are the chances of that? I knocked that son of a bitch 10 inches from the hole (laughs) and tapped in for eagle. And uh, we have it on video, actually. Uh, Brian Gertz, who was out on that trip in Arizona with us, was rolling on that. And you hear Parkins, he does a Dick Enberg after it starts to leave. He goes, oh, my. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> he gave a real crisp, oh, my. And the video is so cool as we're because we can't see how close it is. We don't even know if it's on the green till we drive up because it was elevated. And we're starting to turn around, and I look down to my right because we're we're above the green, actually, where the cart path took us to. And I look down there, and I said, "My God, I can't believe almost almost double eagled that hole." Which is uh, it's called an albatross, is it not? When you get a two I'm on not, a five, you know, it might be. I've never been in that territory. Yeah, before. I think it is. I think a two on a five is called an albatross, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, not, not that I even know what an albatross is. By the way, was that a three wood or a five wood from two thirty seven? A uh, three wood, yeah. A three wood, yeah. A five wood. I, I don't even own a five wood. I, I do. Own a five wood. I do, and I, you know, honestly. We'll play someday semi soon. Um, when I'm out in the fairway, instead of hitting like a five iron sometimes, you know, because I have more confidence in my woods, so I'll choke up more so on a five wood from about 170 and use that instead. That's just my yeah. game. I, I play the game the wrong way, but it's still fun for me. No, you know, whatever way works for you. I, I hit long irons better than I hit, um, uh, like everybody loves the hybrid or or the five wood. I, I don't feel comfortable with them, so I'll take an iron to it. If you can hit a three, if you can hit a three iron, two hundred yards, why mess around with another club? 
Hey, absolutely. All right, we got two more segments here. Appreciate, you know, of course, you joining us today, Danny, and it's good seeing you and talking to you. I want to do a, a segment that we do called Walk Down Memory Lane. And, you know, obviously, all the years that we've both been in broadcasting and covering sports, there's so many memories. But I have one that stands out with you in mind, and it was during the Stanley Cup. And, and, and you know, I was reminded of this by the passing of our cohort, Les Grobstein, who was sitting up in the upper echelon and I think this was in Boston for game six, and they're losing two to one, uh, or maybe it was in Philadelphia when they won, but I think it was in Boston. Anyway, it was you, him, and Speegs were sitting way up on the ceiling area, and then they scored the two goals. Am, am I re remembering this correctly? Well, yeah, we had the Matt Spiegel and I had the pleasure of Les's company both in Philadelphia and in Boston. Uh, you know, and knowing how much Les enjoyed hockey made that fun for me because, you know, Les being nine years older than, than I, um, he had even suffered more than I had. So yeah. I appreciated that. But, yeah, it was in Philly. You know, when, when Kane scores that goal, we had, we had no idea what happened, just like anyone watching on television or most of the people in the rink. I look at Spiegel, I look at Les, and it's like, why is Brent Seabrook throwing his stick and gloves in the air? Why is What the hell just happened? And it took so long for them to get us downstairs, us media, and get near a television to finally see a replay because we were allowed to go out on the ice and uh, – you know, I I abused the credential. I didn't go down there to interview people. I went down there to uh, to shake hands and take a few pictures with people I I either knew and admired, like Pat Foley, or um, or Duncan Keith, and um, same thing in Boston. But yeah, Spiegel missed 17 seconds in Boston, and you're the Hawks were playing like shit. I mean, they, this thing's going seven. We're late in the third period. Boston had been out playing them all night. And, man, you get two goals. On the second goal, Spiegel's on his phone texting. And I said, dude, they're going to win the cup. They're going to win the cup. Poland just scored the game winner. They killed the last 10 or 20 seconds, whatever was left. What an, what an amazing ride that was. Now. You covered both of those on the road, did you not? Yeah, I was going to refer to that because you guys were doing your show from whatever bar. I remember in Boston, you were across the street from where the Bobby Orr statue was. It was right across the street, if I remember correctly. In Philly, it was a little bit further down, but it was it was a nice bar restaurant. And I would go to either the practice or the morning skate and come back. And you were always enamored that I could play all those multiple cuts real quickly on the air along with you. So, yeah, those were great, great, great times. Oh, the triple the triple cut. Yeah, you would you would give me some triple cuttage. I got a trivia question for you. Okay. Because you're not a hockey guy. And I had to think when somebody asked me this question recently, but I did get it right. As a guy who was in all of those post-game news conferences and news conferences after practices, can you name either the Flyers or the Bruins head coach? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, it's hard, it's, isn't it? you, you, you don't, you'll say the names and it'll you know quickly come back into the recesses of my mind, but off the top of my head, I can't. I yeah. honestly can't. 
The Flyers were coached by Peter Laviolette. That's right. And the Bruins were coached by Claude Julien. And it's spelled Claude, but he's a Frenchman, so we call him Claude. He yes. is Claude Julien. Yeah. I had to think about it. It took me a while to pull both of them. Actually, I remember Julian, but it took me a while to get the Flyers. And you know what, Danny? You know, you said you didn't see the puck go into the net when Kane. I mean, they lined us up because it was going into overtime. And, you know, if the Hawks won, we were going to go on the ice. So they lined us up in the hallway, you know, off, off the ice, you know, about 100, 200 yards away. I didn't see it going either. There was a little, like, 13-inch black and white TV that one of the camera people had on the floor. And so when they finally went in and they figured it out, they lined us up to go out there. And, you know, they did the little party on the ice before they let us on. The first person I talked to in Philadelphia, I don't know if you remember this, was Dan Quinn, the lieutenant governor. You know, because I had to get somebody on the air to make myself worthwhile, if you will. And he was... <laughs> He was so gaga about the whole thing. And then we went on and we talked to all the players. And then the same thing in Boston. You know, in Boston, they were losing two to one, you know, yeah. going into the last minute and a half or whatever it was. So we went down to um, the Hawks uh, locker room and we were standing outside thinking that we're going into the losing locker room. And I didn't see either of those two goals either. And then all of a sudden they score the two goals and they bring us back out to the ice. And, you know, the same thing, deja vu all over again. And those are some of the great thrills. I mean, when the White Sox won down in Houston, when the Cubs won in Cleveland, the Hawks winning in Boston and Philadelphia, I got on the field or on the ice for all those things. Those are my treasured memories that I'll, you know, treasure the rest of my life. Yeah, you know, we're we're lucky if we can say as grown men, it still accesses us to being a wide-eyed child. And obviously you you have that emotion when you reflect on these things and with the Blackhawks I certainly I certainly had them also and now you know that we have some distance between where we are today and where we were when we were cutting our teeth some things take on an even greater greater significance and make you have even more gratitude for the things you've seen like you know being on the sidelines for the fog bowl Yes, that's that's incredible. You know, I mean, you could be watching NFL films and my sons aren't big sports fans, but they had the greatest name games on in an NFL films, 10, uh, 10 games, the sea of hands with the Raiders. And I think the Steelers immaculate reception, same two teams, the catch Dwight Clark. And uh, there's the fog bowl. And, you know, they've got this video and my son Van is watching this and he goes, man, how did they play? I said, Van, I was standing right down there on the field. We couldn't see in the press box. And in that era, uh, that was New Year's Eve of 88. There were only, what, 50, 75 people in that press box. And because you didn't have a million websites and a million people covering so they invited a lot of us down to the sideline, and I was standing at the pylon in the north end zone on the Bears' sideline, the northwest corner, and uh, watching Reggie White throw Tom Thayer and Jay Hilgenberg, buddies of mine, around like a redheaded stepchild. Was, I'm like, hey, those are friends of mine. Quit doing that. He was an animal. 
those are some amazing memories, some of the stuff we've seen. Oh, 100%. And, and as I say to a lot of people, someday I'm going to be in a nursing home or something, and, and, and I'm going to say, oh, I knew Michael Jordan. And the guy next to me is going to say, will you increase this guy's meds because he's just babbling like no tomorrow. You know, the fog the fog bowl, and I was down there also on the field. We started upstairs and we came down there. You literally could not see halfway across the field. You couldn't see anything. I don't know how they, I don't know how they played, to be honest with you. I have no idea. Yeah, visibility wasn't more than 25, maybe 30 yards. It's 53 yards sideline to sideline, and we couldn't see the Eagles' sideline from uh, from the Bears' side of it um, when it was at its thickest, and uh, not many balls were thrown along that day. Randall Cunningham actually posted some pretty good numbers against the Bears that day. The Bears did not play particularly well but they managed to come out of there with a win and then got their asses kicked in cold weather the next week by the 49ers. Bear weather. Bullshit. Bear weather. Bear Bullshit. down. All right. We're, we come now to our final segment. It's our trivia segment. And Alan, uh, who's, who's, our, who's our producer, I think he's got a little bit of sponsor he's going to play right here before we get to the questions, Danny. All right. Hello. This is Paul from Nick and Ivy Brewing Company. We are located at 1026 South State Street in historic downtown Lockport, Illinois. We are very excited to be partnering up with the Fat Mike Chicago Sports Show as well as the 1252 brand because we are one of the few Chicagoland breweries that embrace sports and sports culture. Come in for a fresh brewed beer made right here in Lockport while catching the game of your favorite team. Stay for the live music that we have booked every weekend or just come for a cozy atmosphere to enjoy a good conversation with a friend, loved one, or complete stranger. Nick and Ivy makes you feel right at home no matter what the occasion is. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Nick and Ivy Brewing Company. Visit our website for our up-to-date tap list or to go shopping on our online store at nickivybrewing.com. That's N-I-K-I-V-Y brewing.com. Come in today for a fresh brewed beer born and raised in Lockport, Illinois. And our thanks to Nick and Ivy for their sponsorship here. And this is our trivia se uh, segment, Danny. And like I said earlier, I tailored a lot of these questions for you. Um, so you can imagine where I'm going with some of these. And we're going to start right off the bat. The first one, and we talked about Alice Cooper earlier on. And much like the Traveling Wilburys, who, who have had, uh, look, who do they have in the Traveling Wilburys? They had George Harrison. Who else did they have in that? Refresh I'm not familiar with the act, frankly. All right. Well, anyway, it was George Harrison and a bunch of other people that uh, Jeff Lynn was in there as well and some other people. But Alice Cooper did the same kind of thing. He got together with a bunch of other people. And do you remember they had sort of like a super band? This is in 2012. Do you recall this? I I have a vague memory of it, and I, I will remember some of the participants when you say them, but I'm struggling. I'm doing what you did when I was looking for Claude Julian's name. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to buy time for myself here, and I'm not having any luck. Okay, well, let me, let me fill in some blanks. This is 2012, and it was uh, Alice Cooper, and he got together with, I'll tell you who they are, Johnny Depp. Yes, and Joe Perry and one other guy. And what they were doing is they were they wanted to do a tribute to a lot of the musicians who passed away from the drug era back in the 70s. And so they formed this band. And I don't know if they're they're still doing it or not, because I don't even know if all these guys are still around. 
but the name of the band that they did, and they toured around for a while, they were called the Hollywood Vampires. Yeah. I remember it now. And I, you know, and Jim Morrison was uh, given a huge tribute in that show because Alice was friendly with Morrison. And in one of the interviews I did with Alice, um, I asked him what it was like hanging with Jim. And he said, you know, I, I it's amazing the guy even made it to 27 because of how wild he was and how he would put anything in his body that would intoxicate him. So, yeah, I, I, I remember that. I, I absolutely remember the Hollywood vampires. I didn't see it, and I, I've not seen video on it, but I remember reading about it when they were doing it. I guess YouTube, which has everything else, if you're curious, you could probably find something there. By yeah. the way, talking about Jim Morrison, I think one of the great uh, portrayals in a movie history, and I'm a big movie buff, and I know you are as well, uh, was Val Kilmer doing Jim Morrison in the Jim Morrison story. I don't know if you ever saw that or not, but it was really, really a good portrayal. Oh, he crushed it as Jim Morrison. Yeah, that brought me back to the Doors because I was a Doors fan as, as a teenager and shortly after, but I wasn't, I wasn't rabid. After I finally got to the Doors movie and it was produced in 91, I want to say, I didn't start watching it until this century. I think it was 01 or 02 when I saw it for the first time. I had a renaissance with the doors. I went out and bought a bunch of, at the time, CDs. I went out and bought Morrison Hotel. I bought their debut album, which is as good as it gets for debut albums. I mean, they start their rock and roll career with Break On Through. That's not a bad way to say hello, is it? Yeah, talk about Rookie of the Year right off the bat. All right, so we, we talked about earlier that uh, Alice Cooper's real name is Vincent Fernier. What's his middle name, real middle name? Oh, <laughs> I don't know Alice's middle name. It's, I don't know. It's Damon. Damon. <laughs> Vincent Damon Fernier. So, I mean, it's pretty smart that he changed it ultimately to Alice Cooper. And there's even a story about him changing his name, you know, because the band was Alice Cooper. They disbanded at least the original members of the Alice Cooper. But he changed his name literally, you know, uh, legally also to Alice Cooper. But because he did every year, he's got to pay out a certain kind of royalty to all the original members of a band because he changed his name legally, which I don't totally understand, but that's been the way for, I don't know, ever since he changed his name to, illegally to Alice Cooper. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. Um, some a lot of talent has come through the, those doors to work with Alice. And, uh, you know, five, six years ago, I thought he was just blowing smoke at us when he said, this current band I have is just absolutely amazing. And I'm thinking, come on, man, you you worked with Glenn Buxton and Dennis Dunaway. You, you worked with some of the Neil Smith on the drum kit. He he had a lot of talent around him, but he wasn't exaggerating. They had a chick playing guitar who was just, she just crushed it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, his father, Alice Cooper's father. Do you remember what profession he was in? Was he a salesman, a furniture salesman? Uh, not exactly. He was a preacher of the Church of Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> Alice at a young age, or Vincent at a young age, was very much into the church, and they thought for a long time that that's 
the avenue and path that he was going to go down. And so when he does the song, No More Mr. Nice Guy, and they talk that one part in the song where, you know, he, uh, the preacher or whatever hits him in the nose or something like that. I'm just thinking, did he have his father in mind when he wrote that line in that song? Oh, that's good. Or uh, from the song Guilty from Goes to Hell, I'm a dirt-talking, beer-drinking, woman-chasing minister's son. Right. He was right. talking about himself. A hundred percent. All right. So, you know, he, he got into music early. He also played baseball. You know that he played. He was a pretty good baseball player out in Arizona on the high school team and a golfer, of course. But he started a, a band, I think, when he was 16 years old. Do you remember his very first band's name? The Runaways? Uh, no, no. Uh, the very first band's name. And they went to a local Letterman talent show with this band's name. And they will, they were called the Earwigs. <laughs> oh, 17 year olds under the influence they come up with some of the really really cool things don't now, they I'll, I'll, I'll tell you then then i i guess they busted up or whatever then they changed their name i mean they might have added some people obviously then they became uh the spiders um and then ultimately it became alice cooper all right what was his number one uh first number one album which one Number one album. <clears throat> I tried to find the number one song, but I couldn't find that. But I found the number of his first number one album. I'd have to guess School's Out. Uh, is Was that the name of an album? I'm not yeah, even sure. That's why I said School's Out. Okay. Yeah. Billion Dollar Babies, according to Wikipedia. Okay. Makes sense. Billion Dollar Baby had some good tracks on it. Yeah. Really cool uh, inserts, too. That's what you don't get by downloading music. They had these gigantic billion-dollar bills right. inside the album cover of it. Of course, you get your liner notes, and if uh, the publisher <laughs> is feeling really generous, they may even include some lyrics. Yeah, 100%. All right, one more on Alice. For a while, um, and you know, he, he married uh, somewhere early, and then he divorced, and then he got married again. He's been with that same uh, woman. I forget what Cheryl. her name is. That's right. And he's been with her for a long time. I got to so, prove I know something about this guy. Okay. Well, let's see if you get this one. He was famously linked with an actress who was a bombshell at the time. He, was he denied this, too. And I called bullshit on it when he told me Raquel Welch made passes at him. And he said no, that he was a one-woman man. And when Pete McMurray and I interviewed him in 2016, I said, I'm calling BS on that, Alice. Who can say no to Raquel? He said, yes. swear to God. He goes, I'm guilty of a lot of things. I put a lot of bad things in my body. And, you know, I'm not proud of a lot of things I've done. But that would not be among the things for which I'm guilty. Yeah, I mean, I mean how can you pass that up? Oh, my God. All right. Uh, a couple more here. Now we're going to switch over to fishing. Um, you talked about the muskie. You caught a 50-inch one. What is the world record size, poundage, and inches for a muskie? Well, there's debate about this. I saw that. There, yeah. Did you see the story about? I God, I'm not pulling his name either. There was a guy who admitted to putting sand in a fish that once was weighed and given the off. You know, it was often. It was officially recorded as 
the largest musk he ever boated, the heaviest musk. On his deathbed, the guy admitted to weighing the fish down with about two pounds of sand. That's what he confesses on his deathbed. Not not all the people he's wronged in the world. Not all the ba- <laughs> what anything you'd like to say before you meet God. <laughs> Get your conscience clean. Yeah, I weighed down that musky. Uh, Sixty nine pounds. Are you looking for the one that's uh, presently located in uh, Wisconsin? Um, I think that that's, that's 65, if I'm not mistaken, but the, you're right. The, the world record, and I, this, it was going back to 1949, some guy in Ohio, and I don't know where he boated the fish. That was the one that was 69 pounds, 11 ounces, measuring 72 inches. It's unfathomable. Yeah, the biggest muskie I ever boated was 52 and a half inches, and uh, I've seen them estimated in the upper 50s i've never seen anything outside of five feet i've never seen a 60 inch fish in the water um but man that's that's crazy that's in a different era and and i bet that fish was caught in a river in new york could be i mean i saw it yesterday on on wikipedia again um by the way have you ever uh fished up at uh in hayward wisconsin which is known as the musky capital up there yeah that's the bar i was trying to think it's called the moccasin bar is is where one of those fish is the and i don't know if they killed the fish or they did a replica of it i i encourage people please do a replica don't kill a fish for its skin um if you're going to eat the fish fine but don't kill it for trophy. Have a replica. Take measurements. There, there's all kinds of great taxidermists out there right now who do replicas. Um, if you saltwater graze, graze taxidermy down in Florida for freshwater in the um, in the Hayward area, lax taxidermy, L-A-X, would be the best way to, uh, to go. Okay, two more. Um, so we talked about supposedly the world record muskie is 69 pounds. How about the world record Northern Pike? I'm going to guess somewhere around 50, 51 pounds. Pretty damn close. Supposedly 55 pounds. That's a big effing fish. Because because I told you, my my friend's father, (laughs) and when he netted that 26-pounder, it was in, uh, in a cove. like It was like he just was trolling, or not trolling, he was just casting out in a little cove. And the thing just took off. It took off. And then we had um, uh, we had an Indian guide from way up northern uh, Canada. Foolishly, he put the net in front of the thing. Like when the first minute or two, it went right through the damn net. You know? <laughs> so we, we, we had it. We had to. We had to clobber it to be honest with you and finally bring it in. But fifty-five pounds. I can't even imagine because this twenty-six uh, pound one. There you go. There's some good pictures right off the bat right there. Yeah, that is quite a belly on that fish. I I have caught a lot of nice northern pike. I've caught a lot of really good eating size northern pike, but I have yet to enter the 40-inch club with northerns. And both of my sons are there. Several of my buddies are there. I've got a, a half a dozen 39 and a half, probably a half a dozen 39s and 38s, but I am yet to get to that 40 inch mark with northerns. You will. I can almost promise you. All right. One last one, world record walleye. And I can't imagine this one either, but what's, what do you think the world record walleye is? 
Well, based on the way you've shaped it, it's going to be bigger than any walleye we've ever heard of being caught around here. Yeah. Um, 35 pounds? 20, supposedly 29 pounds, which was 41 inches. I can't even imagine a walleye that big. It, it would almost be like a fatso walleye, to be honest <laughs> with you, because the walleyes that we were catching, and you've caught them up to uh, probably in Canada, six, seven, eight pounds, maybe nine once in a great moon. You know, I think this, at some point they get too big. I don't even know if they would taste that good, to be honest. No, any, yeah, anything outside of the slot, which in most provinces is 18 to 24 inches, probably best to release if the fish survives. And hopefully you take good care of your fish, fishermen, when you catch these things, don't abuse them, don't slap them around, get them back in the water quickly. And after you take a picture with them, um, when you when I see big walleye behind the glass at a at a grocery store, I shake my head. It's like no, no, those those fish are 27, 28 inches long. The the meat is it's not spoiled meat, but it's not nearly as as good and mild as the uh, as the smaller ones. I think the perfect size walleye to eat are 14, 15, 16 inches. The biggest one I ever caught, I caught him while fishing for muskie. So I was mildly disappointed because um, I'm fishing for big toothy critters and I caught a 31 and a half inch walleye that weighed almost 12 pounds. That's, uh, a, big, that's a big fish. Yeah, 11 pounds and 10 ounces. I weighed her, um, got her back in the water real quickly. Um not disappointed when I show people the picture of it. And it was cold weather fishing in Canada, too. I'm all bundled up and uh, big old ass smile on my face with that 31 and a half inch Wally. Hey, Danny, did you ever do smelt fishing back in the day on Lake Michigan? I never did. Um, it, it looks like something that would, if you don't know what you're doing, could drive you to insanity real quickly. Yeah. I like to eat smelt. Oh, fantastic. Um, Yummy. Yeah. Yeah. They're good. They're tasty. I don't even know what the Lake Michigan population is, if they even have one for smelt anymore. Yeah. I don't know if they do. And this is back in the day. And and yeah, you had to have special equipment. You had to have a, what I think were called gill nets or something like that. And you throw it down there and you put the light on the water and you just bring it up. It was almost like crab fishing, uh, if you will. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was with some friends who are very avid uh, fishermen that you would get along with famously. And we were 16, 17, 18 years old. So all we were really doing was drinking beer and, you know, <laughs> having fun, if you uh, will. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, Back in the day. I, uh, I've heard that the muskie population on Lake Michigan is beginning to slowly migrate south. Interesting. And that... That prospect tickles the hell out of me because um, I know it's great near Green Bay. Mm -hmm. uh, the Lake Michigan, uh, near Green Bay, there are some tremendous musky holes in the islands and in some of the coves. I've not done this yet, but that's going to change this year. Um, I guess there was there was a musky. I don't know if it was Montrose Harbor this year or or if it was up just a little bit more north in Winthrop Harbor, right near the Wisconsin line. But there was a musky of some note, plus 40 inches, caught in Lake Michigan water. So if they can keep coming south, that'd make me quite uh, quite happy. 
you know, when my son was younger and I wanted to replicate a, a trip that my father took with me and we didn't go up to Canada, maybe someday we will, but we went up uh, to, uh, well, we went up through Wisconsin, then we crossed over and we were in Lake, uh, Lake Michigan, but it was in Escanaba, Michigan, I think is what it's called. And we were catching lake trout up there back in, at that time. So, yeah, I mean, some of those fish are going to start migrating further down south. I mean, we went, used to go coho fishing all the time back on, you know, when we were 16, 17, 18 years old on Lake Michigan. That was a hoot also. It's, it's, a, it's a passion. You have to have patience, like you said earlier, because you can go sometimes two or three times in a row and not catch anything. But when you finally snag your first one, and especially a nice size fish, it's pretty cool. Coho is an extremely underrated eating fish. Mm -hmm. uh, and they don't have to be big. And I don't do it anymore. When I was just starting to fish um, in my late teens, and my dad used to take me out um, on the boat to go drown crickets and minnows for bluegill and crappie. But when I started to get out on my own, we used to fish the warm water discharges on Lake Michigan on the southern end near the steel mills. And the coho fishing in the late winter, early spring is tremendous. And they don't have to be real big. You, you get those fish in the 14 to 20 inch range, two or three pounders. They are tremendous. And I used to, I used to make, I smoke a bunch of them and make a smoked coho salmon salad and take them to the guys at the score in the early nineties. I, I made about a 10 pound tub of that stuff one day and brought in a couple of loaves of rye bread. And, oh, Seth Mason was so tickled to have something healthy from one of his air personalities. <laughs> Those are the good old days, obviously. And you're whetting my appetite to go fishing and play golf with you and maybe even see another Alice Cooper concert before we're both long gone. Hopefully it all happens. Hey, if Alice, if Alice hits Chicago this year and I've not looked at his site lately, I don't know if there are any, any plans already, already inked. But I am absolutely down for that, and I would be happy to teach you how to hit a three iron longer than you do. Um, but yeah, when the weather breaks, and given uh, continued improvement from physical therapy with my neurological issues, I hope to see you on the golf course in May or June. It's a date, Danny. Hey, I appreciate you joining us tonight. Again, if you want to follow Danny, you can catch him on uh, Twitter at DannyMac2021. And of course, is it Fridays for a couple of hours on WJOB also? Yeah, every Friday, two hours, WJOB. Suburban radio doesn't suck like it did years ago because of the TuneIn app. You can listen anywhere in the world for free on the TuneIn app, so I don't I don't have to deal with that. My listeners in the city uh, can jump on board, and it's also on demand at Jed TV on Twitter at Jed, J-E-D-TV. WJOB, noon to two on Fridays, and we have just re-upped. We are doing another six months. Thanks to our title sponsor, Bet Rivers, for coming on board. So I thought it was just going to be a football season deal, David, but they want us to keep going. So well, that, that, that a smart move on their part. And also, is is your book still in uh, in the process? Yeah, it's in the process. I have two books in the process. They're both half finished. I started one in 2012 or 2013 about. Patrick's autism, my middle son, Patrick, 28 now, and what his autism did to change my life and how it challenged me and his brothers, his mom, 
and what his unique challenges were. I wrote about half of that. And after the score fired me in September of 20, was it 20? Yeah, September of 20, um, I started my radio book, which I'd you know been keeping notes on, saving text messages, emails that are evil in nature over the years. Um, that book is half done. Maybe I should just slap them together and say, you guys figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, listen, I'll read them both, but I can't (laughs) wait for the one on radio because I know you and I know you're going to have some good stuff in that book for sure. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to swing from the heels because that's the only way I know how. Uh, listen, hang on a second. I'm going to say goodnight to the audience, but hang on one second. So again, Alan, uh, if you can end this broadcast, we appreciate everybody listening in. I'm going to take next Sunday off because it's a Super Bowl and I intend on you know being uh, semi-inebriated while watching the game. <laughs> or maybe, maybe more than semi, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> hang on one second, Danny, and we'll say goodnight to the audience. All right. Thank you for listening to 1252 Sports Chicago.